Hello and welcome to the first episode of the UK Dividend Stocks vodcast. Uh, my name is John Kingham and since this is the first episode, uh, I thought it would be a good idea if I just did a broad overview of my entire approach to investing in dividend stocks. Uh, so let's just crack on with that. There are five steps, um, actually six, but really it's five. So, so there's a step zero. So step zero, let's, I'll just run through the steps and then, we'll, then we can dive into some more detail. So step zero is to think like a business owner. And step one is to identify quality dividend stocks. Uh, and then the next step is to calculate fair value. Then we buy when there's a margin of safety. Um, and step four is to invest more in the best stocks. And step five is to diversify to reduce risk. So that may not mean anything to you, which is fine. Uh, we're going to dig into the details a bit more uh, right now. First of all, quick disclaimer. This content is for educational purposes only, does not contain financial advice tailored to your specific needs. You should talk to a regulated financial advisor if you think you need one and your capital is at risk when you invest and you could get back less than the amount invested. Okay, so step zero is to think like a business owner. So what does that mean? It means that when you buy shares, you are literally buying a piece of a business. So if you buy shares in Tesco, then you literally own a piece of Tesco. You don't just own a piece of paper, a share certificate, or some numbers that go up and down on a screen. You literally own a piece of Tesco. So let's just imagine that you owned all of the shares in Tesco and you own the whole business. So if you were the owner of Tesco, what, what would you focus on? What would be your, your main interest apart from that? You'd be fabulously rich. But in, in terms of the investment, what would you be interested in? I'm going to say you would probably be interested in how Tesco was performing. If you own the whole business, you would be interested in how the business was doing. How much sales was it generating? What profits? How many employees did it have? What was the economic backdrop like? What was the, the management strategy for taking the company forwards? What were the competitors up to? Lots and lots of things to do with the business. What you probably wouldn't be that interested in, or at least you wouldn't spend most of your time thinking about, is what other people thought Tesco was worth. So you wouldn't necessarily be that interested in whether someone thought the company was worth, uh, I, don't, I have no idea what the market cap of Tesco is, but you wouldn't be that interested in whether someone thought it was worth 10 billion or 9 billion or 9.5 billion 
or whether last week they thought it was worth 10 billion and this week they think it's worth nine and a half billion. It's kind of, it's irrelevant what someone else thinks the business is worth. What matters is how the business itself is performing because that's the thing you're invested in. And so from the point of view of, uh, of someone investing in shares who doesn't own Tesco outright, if you spend most of your time thinking about share prices and whether they're up five or 10% or down 2% from last week, all that represents, all that share price represents is what someone else is buying and selling the business for. It doesn't tell you anything about the actual business that, that you're going to be investing in, that you are going to be a part owner of. So for me, as an investor, at least 90% of your time should be spent on thinking about companies, businesses, the companies you own, the companies you're thinking of owning, the ones you're maybe thinking of selling, but the business, what its financial results are, what its strategy is, what the economic environment is in its markets, and so on. Very little time, no more than 10%, uh, less, much less than that, to be honest, should be spent worrying about, thinking about whether the share price is up or down five or 10% in a given week, month, or, or even in a year. So the first point, the foundational idea that sits underneath everything else is that when you buy shares in a company, you own a piece of that company. You are a business owner, and that's the way that you should approach um, stock picking. So now we're all thinking like business owners. Uh, the first actual step that involves doing something is uh, to identify quality dividend stocks. That's the first step. Before you can invest in a company, you need to assess that company, analyze it, think about it. Is it the right kind of company? So obviously I'm a dividend investor. I'm looking for uh, consistent dividend growth over time and therefore obviously I'm going to be looking for dividend paying companies but specifically what I'm after is high quality companies so why quality companies why not buy rubbish companies well that buying rubbish companies at extremely low valuations is an entirely reasonable way to invest but it's not really, it's not a good fit with a dividend strategy because those companies typically don't pay dividends or if they do pay dividends, they're likely to get cut. They're unlikely to grow them progressively over the long term, over multiple decades. So that's, that's really the, the, the short answer is that low and medium quality companies rarely produce sustained dividend growth. If you want to invest in companies that can grow their dividend over a long period of time, Yes, there might be the occasional cut, that's that's life. But over the long term, if you're looking for sustained dividend growth, probably the place to look is uh, high quality companies. So in addition to uh, a company being high quality, it's also useful if it has a degree of defensiveness because as we know 
bad things happen, pandemics happen. So you can have a very high quality company, but if it's fragile, which I kind of, I think of the, the robustness or fragility of a company as being separate from its quality. You could have a very high quality painting, but it, it could be fragile if someone drops it and it breaks. So in the same way, you can have a high quality company if it runs into a really tough economic environment like a pandemic, then it might fall apart, suspend the dividend, uh, have very bad things happen. So in addition to um, a company being high quality, it's also, I think it's nice to have, it's a good idea to have a degree of defensiveness and the more defensiveness, the better uh, to a degree, I suppose. So let's look at quality companies. What makes a quality company? Well, there are lots of different things, but kind of the main things that I look at or look for are high levels of profitability. So specifically, it's something called return on capital, which just means that uh, companies need capital. So they need assets, they need factories, warehouses, machinery, equipment, vehicles all sorts of assets and obviously the higher if you if you invest a million pounds into a factory you want to get a good return on that factory and so quality companies tend to produce higher rates of return above average rates of return consistently over long periods of time that allows them to reinvest more profit uh, to generate more growth it gives them a larger buffer uh, if there's a downturn so that um, there's you know there's more profit to uh, absorb the, the stresses before they make a loss um, and it's also a sign that the company is highly competitive because if it wasn't it wouldn't be able to produce high levels of profit you'd have a competitor would come in and you would un and they would underprice you undercut your price or produce a better widget more cheaply or, or or whatever competitors would come in and compete away those high profits so the fact that the company has produced consistently high profits over a long period of time tells you that it's probably a highly competitive quality company uh, quality companies also generate growth reasonably consistent growth although obviously the world is an uncertain place and uh, companies don't just grow consistently every single year or at least almost no companies manage to do that uh, but but reasonably consistent growth over long periods of time is a sign that the company has been able to compete it hasn't got hasn't been destroyed by competitors it's been able to maybe expand into new markets these are all you know this is kind of soft indicators of of quality uh, another sign is that the company is a, a master of its trade, which really means that it's had a fairly narrowly focused business. It doesn't try and do everything. It's not a jack of all trades. It's a master of a fairly narrow niche. And it's had that niche business typically for decades. So it's been honing its skill and competence and reputation in a narrow sphere of activity for a long period of time uh, and then that could in itself can be then be very difficult to compete against in the same way that someone who's played tennis eight hours a day for 10 years is probably going to be pretty good at tennis 
assuming that they've got some talent as well, obviously. So um, the last thing is that uh, quality companies have durable competitive advantages. And so these advantages are what enables the company to grow and produce high levels of profit. And there are lots of different types of competitive advantages. I'm not going to go into all of them or any of them, to be honest, in detail. Uh, I'll, I'll do that in a future video because it, there's, there's enough different types and enough uh, detail in you know what they are and how they work that it's an entire video of itself. But just remember that if you're looking for a quality company, in addition to kind of financial uh, outputs like higher levels of profit and growth, you're looking for something typically either structural uh, or cultural that gives it a, an enduring competitive advantage. And so in terms of defensiveness, uh, I generally think of defensiveness in terms of, I mean, the obvious one, well, there's a couple of obvious ones around the market. The first one is that it operates in a defensive market, which is basically that the market is not very cyclical. In other words, that supply and demand are fairly steady supply and demand and pricing in the market. So, you know, the market for toilet roll is pretty stable over time. You know, people need a certain amount of toilet roll, doesn't really go up. People don't buy more toilet roll because the economy is booming and they don't stop buying toilet roll when the economy uh, goes down the toilet. So, uh, pardon the pun. So, toilet roll is defensive. Whereas something like a car, everyone uses cars all the time, but it's really, really easy to not buy a new car. If there's a recession, you can just say, hey, I'm not going to buy a new car for two years. So um, the demand for cars will go up in a boom and it can fall off a cliff in a downturn. So defensive companies tend to operate in more defensive markets, but that's not always necessarily the case. But it's certainly that's that's a pretty obvious sign that a company is more defensive and the second thing to do with the market is that the market is growing you can operate in the most defensive market in the universe but if it's if it's in long-term decline it's, you can't really call the company defensive so good examples of this are the tobacco companies or the oil and well actually not oil and gas the tobacco companies tobacco is you know amazingly defensive there's a certain number of people who smoke they're not going to stop smoking anytime soon in aggregate. And, uh, you know, they smoke about the same number of cigarettes every day, year in, year out. So it's unbelievably, you know, smoke more cigarettes because there's a booming economy and you don't stop smoking because there's a recession. I mean, some people will, but really not a noticeable amount. So tobacco supply and demand is really stable so it's an incredibly defensive market however it's in long-term decline the, the total number of cigarettes sold in the world has been declining by something like five uh, percent or something for many many uh, years and that is very very likely to continue you know as more and more people as there's more and more government regulation uh making it hard for tobacco companies to advertise or, or make their packs look nice or anything and then as, as people's understanding of the health cost uh you know becomes more widely known fewer people take up uh, cigarette smoking so tobacco companies operate in a very defensive market but because that market is in 
long-term, not necessarily terminal, but long-term decline, it's hard to say that they're really defensive businesses because it's not a defensive business if it's in decline. So that that's another thing. I look for a, a growing market. Uh, and then the last thing is that defensive companies are robust. So you could have a company operating, selling toilet paper. But if it's got enormous amounts of debt, then even the slightest wobble in, in the demand for toilet paper. Um, so like in the pandemic, everyone ran out and bought a year's worth of toilet paper in one go, and then they didn't buy toilet paper for a long period of time. But if, if that ended up making the company's profits go down when everyone had stopped buying toilet paper for a while, and yet you've still got massive interest payments to pay to the bank because the company's got so much debt, then that's not really a defensive business. If, if you're super sensitive to tiny changes in your profits because your company is leveraged up to the eyeballs, has got, in other words, has got enormous amounts of debt, then uh, that's not defensive. It's like being someone whose income fluctuates a small amount, but because a credit card uh, or your mortgage makes up 90% of your income, and that's obviously a fixed cost, then uh, the gap between your income and the fixed cost uh, is much more volatile than, than the small changes in your income, which sounds a bit technical. But basically, if you've got enormous amounts of debt, then it's difficult to call the company defensive because a small bump in the economic road can cause the company to crash. Okay, step two. Let's say we've now found a really high quality dividend growth company. It's been growing, let's say it's Unilever, which I currently own shares in Unilever. So let's say Unilever. It's very stable business, defensive, it's in growth markets, uh, it's paid a dividend that grows over time for decades and is, I think, likely to for a long time in the future. <clears throat> However, before we buy Unilever, uh, you need to think about the price because the price of a company or anything is not necessarily the same as its value. So the value of something is, is what a rational, knowledgeable buyer would pay. And so if you think of a, a like an auction, like a TV program, like Bargain Hunt, they go into a, a, a big boot fair or, or, or car boot sale or whatever. Um, and they go around, they've got 50 pounds, 100 pounds, whatever it is, and they, they buy some antique stuff. But they don't really know what they're doing. So they might buy um, a vase for 50 pounds. Um, and then they set it at auction the next day. And maybe at auction, and at the auction, there are knowledgeable, reasonably rational buyers. And, you know, the, the collective wisdom of, of those experts is that the, uh, the, the actual value of that vase is £20. But the people paid, the price they paid the day before uh, at, the, uh, at the boot sale was £50. So the price is £50, but the, the value or at least a reasonable estimate of the true value, is £20. So price and value are not the same thing. And if you pay a price which is much higher than the true value of the asset, the vase or Unilever, 
then you're not going to get very good returns. So we need to have a, a reasonable estimate of the fair value of a company before we invest in it. And so where does the fair value of a company come from? So let's imagine uh, there's a black box on a table and you put money into the black box and no money ever comes out of it. So if you put £100 in, you'll never get any money out. So how much money would you put into that black box? I'm assuming you would put no money into it because you're never going to get any money out. Okay, so that seems reasonable. What about a company? If you are going to invest in a company, let's say there's a company and it's never ever going to return. You, could, you, you somehow you know, you can see into the future and you know this company is never ever going to return any money to you whatsoever. It's never going to pay a dividend, never going to buy back its own shares. It's never, it's just going to exist for maybe one more year, go bust and return zero. How much would you invest in that company? So I'm assuming that you would say nothing. Why would you invest money into something that is going to not pay you any cash back and it's going to go to zero? That seems like a really bad idea. So the value of a company is the cash that you'll get back out of it at some point. If you're going to buy Tesco, and I mean buy the whole company, not buy shares where you're thinking about selling them to someone else. If you were going to buy an entire business, why would you buy the company? The only reason you're going to buy a company is because it's going to pay you back some cash at some point. Now, you might say, well, I can buy the company and in a year from now, I might be able to sell it for twice what I paid for it. But why is the next person going to buy the company? The only reason the next person is going to buy the company is because they think it's going to pay out some cash. At some point, somebody somewhere has to get some paid some cash by the business, not simply from selling it to someone else. And if the company's not ever going to pay any dividends, then it's not worth anything. If it's never going to pay any cash out as a dividend or any type of cash return from the company to its shareholders, it has no economic value. So fair value depends only on the actual cash that comes from the company back to its shareholders. So it really depends on three things. So, so fair value is based on the dividends that a company is going to pay out. And there are three aspects of the dividends which affect fair value. So the first one, obviously, is the size of the dividend. If you've got two companies and they're both going to pay one dividend and then go bust, and one company's going to pay a dividend of a pound per share, and the other company's going to pay a dividend of 50p per share, which company has the higher fair value? Which company's more valuable? The one that's going to pay a pound or the one that's going to pay 50p dividend? Obviously, the one that's going to pay a pound is worth more because it's going to pay a bigger dividend. So the first thing that we need to think about is how big are these future dividends, which is, seems pretty straightforward. The second thing that affects the value of a company or the value of those future dividends is when the dividends are going to appear. 
So again, if we've got two companies, one's going to pay a pound dividend tomorrow and then go bust. And the other company is going to pay a pound dividend five years from now and then go bust. So it pays no dividend at all until five years from now. It pays a pound per share, then it goes bust. The first one pays a pound tomorrow. So which would you rather have, a pound tomorrow or a pound five years from now? Most people would want to have a pound tomorrow because if you get a pound tomorrow, you can invest it in something else and it might be worth more. Or you might be dead in five years, so you don't want to wait five years to get a pound. You'd rather have the pound tomorrow. So there's a time, time has value. And so the longer something is away in the future, the less valuable it is. If I said I'm going to pay you a pound 500 years from now, that's not very interesting. Or if I said I'm going to pay you a million pounds tomorrow, or a million pounds 500 years from now, you're probably going to want the million pounds tomorrow. So therefore, the, the, the nearer the dividend, uh, or at least the, the less far the dividend is in the future, the more valuable it is, and the further the dividend is in the future, the less valuable it is. And so this is called discounting. We effectively, we discount the future by some certain amount because things in the far future are less valuable. They are discounted relative to the value of something today. Okay, so the size of the dividend matters. The timing of when the dividend is going to be paid, that affects fair value. And then the last thing is the uncertainty around the dividends. So if there's a company and it's going to, one company is 100% certain to pay a dividend uh, of a pound tomorrow, and then another company is going to pay a dividend of a pound, but we're only 50% certain. So at 50%, it might pay a pound, 50%, it might pay nothing, like on the toss of a coin. And no other dividends are ever paid by either company. So in that case, clearly, the one that's definitely going to pay the pound is more attractive than the one that is only 50% likely to pay a pound. So the more uncertain a dividend, the smaller the value of that dividend is, because it's more uncertain. So that means that fair value then depends upon a company's future dividends, but specifically the size of the dividends, the timing of the dividends, and the degree of uncertainty that we have around those dividends. And the last point is that the fair value of a company uh, it isn't, it is based on these future dividends that I've just been talking about, but specifically fair value literally equals the sum of all of those future dividends. And that, that's really how we calculate fair value. We estimate a company's future dividends which I'll cover in a, in a later uh, episode. Um, and we estimate those future dividends and we just add them all up. And then that gives us a, a fair value number. So once we've calculated fair value, the next thing to do is if we like the company, let's say it's Unilever, great company, high quality, et cetera, et cetera. We calculate fair value whatever it is, I don't know offhand. Uh, so we estimate the company's future dividends, their size, when they're going to be paid, um, how uh, likely they are to be paid, um, and then we come up with a fair value estimate. Then, of course, the next step is, is 
to compare the price of the, the company today with uh, the fair value. And we don't really, you don't want to pay the fair value price for a couple of reasons. The main thing is that our estimate could be wrong. Maybe we think Unilever is worth 100 billion, whatever, um, and we're wrong because our analysis is wrong and it's only worth 70 billion. So it's a good idea to buy stocks when the price is significantly below our estimate of fair value. And this gives us something called a, a margin of safety. So if we think fair value, let's talk in terms of price per share. If we think fair value is 100p per share, we could be wrong. Maybe it could be 200p per share, but we don't know. So to err on the side of caution, we might only be looking to buy if the shares are 60, 50, 60, 70p or less compared to a fair value of 100p. And so it's the same example with whether you, if you watch a show like Antiques Roadshow or Bargain Hunt, uh, you know, people bring in, um, in Bargain Hunt, they go to, uh, they go to the fair and they, and they kind of, they try and think how much is this vase going to, you know, fetch at an auction. And they come up with an estimate of fair value, which isn't based on dividends because it's a different type of asset. But anyway, they might come up with a fair value of £100, you know, and they're able to buy. And then obviously they want to buy at the lowest price. So they start haggling. They say, what's your best price, etc. They try to buy the thing with as big a margin of safety to their estimate of fair value as possible. So they may think it's £100. They might buy it for 60 Often the problem is that because it's a TV show, Bargain Hunt, and these are not experts, their their estimate of fair value is very often very wrong. Um, and also they have to, there's various constraints on the show which make it uh, not the best place to try and make money. Um, but anyway, the point is that once you've estimated this fair value, you only want to buy when there is a significant margin of safety between the price that you pay to buy the thing the company and your estimate of its fair value. And the bigger the margin of safety, the lower the risk, because even if your estimate turns out to be wrong, if you, your estimate is 100p uh, per share for a company and you buy it at 50p a share, you know, even if fair value turns out to be 80p instead of 100p, you still bought it materially below uh, fair value. Um, but also, not only is the risk lower, but also the expected returns are higher because if fair value is 100p and you buy a company for 90p and then actual fair value turns out to be 80p, you've overpaid. So you're probably going to get uh, below average returns uh, or, or a loss in that case if, if, if you ended up holding the company forever and I won't get into the technical details of it, but if you pay more than fair value, then your expected return is going to be below the market average. So buying a company when the price offers you a significant margin of safety is, is probably the most important part of investing. Yes, you want to analyze a company. Yes, you want to do a good job estimating fair value. 
But once you've done that, buying when there is a material significant margin of safety is the best way to both reduce your expected risk and to improve your expected returns. So we've looked at Unilever. We think it's a quality company. We've estimated that it's fair value. We've found that we can buy the company for a significant, let's say we can buy at half what we think fair value actually is. So that's a very large margin of safety. And we, we're going to invest in Unilever. How much should we invest? Good question. Historically, I always used to open new positions in stocks uh, with a fixed size. So I always used to put three, four percent into every company, which is okay. And you end up diversified and it's, it's kind of a, a, a good opening guess as to how much you should put into a company. But there are, there's a couple of kind of thought experiments that we can do that should lead us to hopefully a more rational approach to position sizing. So if you think of two uh, companies, two stocks, A and B, and stock A uh, is, let's say, uh, the same level of risk as stock B, so they're both as risky as each other, but stock A has got twice the expected return. You expect the returns to be twice as good from stock A as they are from stock B for the same level of risk. So which one of those two companies, how, how, how would you split your money between these companies or which one would you put more money into? Would it be a good idea to put the same amount in both companies? Or given that stock A has got twice the expected return of stock B, would it make more sense to put more money into stock A? I think it would. Why would you want to have the same money in A and B if A's got twice the expected return of B? And it would be weird to put more money into B than A because B's got a lower expected return. It's got half the expected return. So from a fairly commonsensical point of view, if a stock has got a better risk-adjusted return, expected risk-adjusted return, and you think it's a better stock, it's going to, it's going to have better returns, uh, then it makes more sense to put more money into that stock. That seems fairly sensible. So the idea is that the more attractive the stock, the bigger the margin of safety, the higher quality the company, of the, company uh, the bigger the position size should be. So rather than having everything at the same size, if we've got Unilever and we think it's an amazingly high quality business, and if we think uh, that the margin of safety is huge, then it makes sense to put more money into that company than another company which we think is maybe lower quality and where we think the margin of safety is smaller. So putting more money into the best stocks is uh, a sensible approach. However, that's just the opening position size. So let's say we like Unilever and then we decide to put 6% uh, into Unilever, you know, a fairly sizable position because we like the company so much. Um, but then the world's not a static place. So 
the risk and return of each stock will vary as the share prices go up and down and as the companies progress through time, as they become better or bigger or worse or smaller or weaker or things happen or good things happen or bad things, things change. And specifically in the shorter term, the main thing that changes is the share price. So let's say we, we bought Unilever and six months after we've bought it, the share price doubles. So its position size goes from 6% to 12% of the portfolio. So we've now got 12% in Unilever, but because there's, let's say the fair value, our estimate of fair value didn't change. We don't think anything material has happened, so the fair value is the same. But if the share price has doubled, let's say fair value is 100p, I've no idea what the Unilever share price is off the top of my head. It, let's, let's say the fair value is 100p and we bought at 50p and the share price doubles. So now the share price is 100p and fair value is 100p. So there's no margin of safety. The share price equals fair value. There's no margin of safety. But at the same time, the position size has gone from 6% to 12%. So we've now got a stock with a really big position and no margin of safety. So the expected uh return has gone down because there's no margin safety and the risk has gone up because there's no margin safety and yet we've now got a really big position so in that case it would make sense to trim unilever or whatever company it was back to a size that was appropriate given the lack of a margin of safety or possibly even to sell the stock entirely and so obviously you'd have the opposite case with another company. You might have a company where fair value is 100p, you added it at 50p, and let's say the share price goes to 25p. You've now got a even bigger margin of safety. Let's assume that you go back and reassess the company and you still think fair value is 100p. You think the market's wrong to have halved the share price. So you've got an even bigger margin of safety. But if the position size was 6%, the share price halved, so the position size is now 3%. So now you've only got 3% in the company um, that's got an enormous margin of safety. So again, it, it doesn't make sense to have such a small position in such an attractively valued stock. So in that case, you might trim some money out of the other one that had no margin of safety and move it into uh, this company where the share price had halved to, to bring its, share, uh, its position size back up to something more appropriate. So this is kind of, and you don't have to go crazy with this stuff. I personally, I, I don't like to make more than one trim and top up adjustment uh, each month. Um, so this isn't like high speed trading every day or something. This is just on a monthly basis. There's a small adjustment. You can look at the position sizes and say, okay, I think that one's too big and I think that one's too small. Let's move a tiny amount of money around in the portfolio just to kind of keep the balance uh, where it seems sensible to have the, the position sizes. So there we go. And then the last step, we've analysed Unilever, we have calculated fair value, we've bought it with a margin of safety, we've adjusted the position size as its share price has gone up and down. Uh, the last thing to do is we're going to be adding more stocks. We don't we're not going to put everything into Unilever. That would be crazy. 
because as good a quality company as Unilever is, there's still a risk that, that very bad things could happen. I'm not saying it could go bust, but maybe things go really pear-shaped and it doesn't have good returns at all. Let's say it has negative returns over the next 10 years. So if you put all your money into that one company, then you're going to get a bad return. So even if you're picking high quality, relatively defensive companies with margin, big margins of safety, it's still a good idea to diversify. I mean, exactly how much depends on what else you've got in your portfolio. You might have funds, stock uh, equity, equity funds, bond funds, who knows, property, real estate, investment trusts. Um, so it really depends. But, you know, it can be sensible to kind of set some general rules and, you know, like you could say, well, I'm not going to put more than 10% of, of uh, my uh, money uh, into any one company. So if I bought Unilever, I wouldn't put more than 10% into it because if it blows up, then that that limits uh, hedges in the the loss uh, the, the maximum loss that I can get from Uni, from Unilever. So that's a good idea to start with. Is just to say, well, what is the maximum amount I want in any one company? Probably shouldn't be a hundred percent. Maybe shouldn't be fifty percent. Maybe ten percent is a good opening guess. But maybe if you're a relatively new investor, you might say, well, I only want five percent in the company. My my approach was. For the first 10 years that I was an active investor was to say, I don't want more than 6%. And if any position went above 6%, I would just chop it in half back to around 3%. Um, I'll have slightly bigger position. My limit now is about 10%, but that's the kind of ballpark I think most people should be thinking of. Um, so let's say, you know, you own 20 different stocks. So they're all around five, four, five, six, seven percent. If you owned 20 airlines, then your portfolio would have done really, really badly, generally, through the pandemic. Possibly to the point where you might have sold out at the bottom in March 2020 because your portfolio probably completely collapsed, you know, 90% or something. Uh, and a lot of people would just sell everything and, and, and panic at that point. So... In addition to diversifying by owning several, you know, 10, 20, whatever companies, it's a good idea to diversify by industry as well. So you don't want to own just restaurants, just airlines, probably a bunch of different companies that operate in different industries. And then that, that protects you from the negative impacts on any one industry. If airlines, if there's a pandemic, airlines and restaurants get hit really badly. But if you've got exposure to the healthcare industry or the supply chain for the healthcare industry, maybe that part of the portfolio does really well. Uh, so by spreading your money around into different companies and different industries, you kind of get this hedging effect where some things do badly, other things do well, and it kind of balances out to some extent. Um, and then the the last, I've got, I've, actually, I've kind of put some specific numbers on on the on the the, the bullet points here. So in terms of multiple companies, my goal is to have 20 to 25 companies. But as I said, really, that depends on what else you've got in the portfolio. If you've got like 90% of your money in a global tracker fund, then you might put 
and it might only own one company. Like you could buy Unilever and put ten percent in it or something. Um, but for a, a portfolio like mine, which is a hundred percent in in directly invested in individual uh, dividend stocks, twenty to twenty five. I used to have thirty. Some people have fifteen. That kind of ballpark. In terms of industries, I don't really have a hard number. I think probably certainly less than half of your portfolio in any one industry like if half of your portfolio was in oil miners then maybe that's not really going to give you a progressive dividend out of your portfolio um so maybe less than a third at most like no more than a third in any one industry but generally it's just the general idea that the portfolio should be kind of spread around a bunch of different industries um, and anyway, then the, so the last point is so we, we, you want to diversify across lots of companies uh, and industries. And then the last dimension is countries. For obvious reasons, you don't want to be in one particular country. And if that country goes, well, obviously, this is a my, uh, I, I'm a UK investor and I talk about UK stocks. So, you know, the obvious risk is that if everything you own, it gets 100% of its profits and revenues from the UK. If the UK economy completely tanks for a decade, that's not so good because you live and well, I live and work in the UK. So if you live and work in the UK and all your stocks are UK focused, you're kind of super exposed to risk from the, to the UK economy. So from that point of view, my general goal is to have uh, more than 50% of the revenues or profits uh, from my portfolio coming internationally. So it just it gives a kind of reasonable level of, of uh, you know, reducing the risk from one uh, country. So that's it. Diversify, own more than one company, whether that's 10, 20, 30, uh, spread across multiple industries and across multiple countries. And that will help to reduce risk in the portfolio so that you don't end up panic selling uh, or, or losing a lot of money if one bad thing happens. Uh, so there we go. That was my five-step approach to investing in dividend stocks. Uh, let's do a quick recap. First of all, think like a business owner. Then identify quality dividend growth stocks. Calculate their fair value. Buy when there is a significant margin of safety. Invest more into the best stocks and then diversify to reduce risk. So that's it. Uh, if you like this episode, then please like the video or the podcast on whatever platform this is on. And uh, I will see you next time. Goodbye.